All right, well, good, good morning, brothers and sisters. It is, a, it is a joy to be able to be up here this morning, to be able to get started now with the Word, to be able to gather with you guys. With, this is a somewhat of a special service. Certainly, I mean, we don't meet at this hour every week at sunrise, so in that sense, this is a special service. We do this once a year, and all of you who are attending must be the, the early morning people, the coffee lovers, the tea lovers. I know I certainly am. I'm ready for another cup of coffee myself, too. It is cold right now. But in another sense, it's not so special that we are meeting right now. I mean, instead of having a morning and evening service, we are simply having two different morning services. But this is still the Lord's Day. This is still the Sabbath. This is still the first day of the week, the day we gather on, because we are remembering and proclaiming that we are Christ's people, that he rose from his tomb on the first day of the week, signaling God's victory and the covenant of redemption over sin and death, which is the very substance and basis of our salvation. And for this morning, I'd like for you guys to open up your Bible to Exodus. If you haven't, if not, or on your phone, that's okay. I'll be, I'll try to speak loud so you, everybody can hear. But we'll be in Exodus 10 to start out. And we'll be in the New Testament as well. But Exodus 10, at first blush, may not seem like a go-to passage for a Resurrection Sunday morning. But, truthfully, the Old Testament is a Christian book as well as the New Testament is. And so it just so happened that in my daily devotions, uh, this passage stuck out to me. It's really hard to turn the pages with my hands, fingers being so cold right now. But let's turn our attention, if you have your word open, to verse 21, and then I'll read through verse 29, and then we'll pray, asking God to bless our time in the word after that. So the reading of God's holy word, beginning at verse 21 in Exodus 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take them to serve the Lord our God. We do not know with what we serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me, take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful morning, this beautiful morning, that we may be up here on top of this hill overlooking this city. And we ask you to remind us that this truly is your city. This is truly your world. You're the one who causes the sun to rise, the moon to, to set from our vantage point. And we pray that you would cause this, your sun to rise up in our hearts this morning with fullness of joy and gladness for all that you have done, Lord. We need you. May you give us understanding this morning. And Holy Spirit, may you conform us all the more to Christ. We thank you for the hope of the resurrection that we have. And may you be exalted in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Exodus chapter 10, that of course would be the ninth plague. 
the the ninth plague leveled against Egypt, against Pharaoh, and the Egyptian false god. It is the precursor, then, of course, to the great and most terrible plague, the death of the firstborn, which, of course, becomes remembered in the Passover feast, the, the celebration of Israel's redemption by the very hand of God from the slavery and bondage that was existing in Egypt. Now, that's important for us as well this morning, as we gather early in light of the reality that our Lord rose from the grave early on the morning after the darkness of the night was waning, on the day after the Old Covenant Sabbath, Sabbath, which of course was preceded by the Passover festivities. The Lord Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples there in that upper room, you should remember. And then he was betrayed and he was crucified and he died and he was taken off the cross before the evening of that day so that the Old Covenant community could prepare for the coming Sabbath. It's a sad reality today, friends, that many people who consider themselves Jewish or Hebrew and not Christian would have yesterday gathered, had in reading from the same passage we just read from this morning or the passage after it, and they would have never seen its relevance to the New Testament and to its, and its fulfillment in Christ which of course is what I hope for us to grasp this morning. And that's one of the reasons we should be praying for those Jewish and Hebrew people who, who recognize Yahweh as the God, but don't see Christ as the coming a Savior, as the promised Messiah. I think that's the spirit of the Apostle Paul's point in Romans 11, that here are people who are worshiping still the shadow and not the, the revelation of who God is in the person of his Son. Now, the text that I had just read describes a literal historic event. It is a supernatural event, most assuredly. Don't pay attention to, don't give any heed to those who want to teach that the plagues were just figurative, that they didn't actually happen. Don't um, give way to those people who want to say that the plagues were just actually these naturally occurring phenom uh, phenomena. These are supernatural events brought about by the Lord God, the sovereign creator over all the universe. And the reason for that, that we must be firm about that, is because what we have happening in our text is divine judgment. Divine judgment from the sovereign God who is righteously punishing sin and rebellion within the context of a covenant. As a matter of fact, God would cease to be holy and righteous if he did not punish sin. It is his goodness that leads him to bring about justice. If the Lord did not exact justice and bring about judgment for sin, then we would have no basis to trust in him. There would be no basis by which we could be secure that are in our salvation. Evil would win and sin would flourish. Trust in the Lord's promises, assurance of our salvation, and every bit of hope we have based on God all hinges upon God being just, upon him being without any shadow or variation of change, without any evil being in him. It is, our whole hope is based upon God's being just and righteous, upon him being good. If God was lackadaisical about sin, if he turned a blind eye to it, or if he just simply overlooked sin and evil, then he would be shady and rotten. He would be unjust even. But that is not the revelation we have of him in his holy word. We see in scripture that God is holy. We, we wouldn't get that from looking at creation. It's wonderful to be out here today to see the sun rise over the hills here in Antioch and the moon retreat there on the other side. But it's the revelation of his holy word that tells us that he is in fact holy. 
we know that he is holy, that he is set apart from his creation and pure from every stain, pure from from all evil because of his self-revelation here in this book. And so he is the thrice holy God we read in Isaiah. In, in Habakkuk, Habakkuk, evil is flourishing. And the prophet in crying out to God proclaims that God has eyes that are too pure to look upon evil. That he cannot look at sin and wrongdoing even. Now, what he means by that is simply that he's holy. That doesn't mean that his omniscience somehow stops in that regard, that his complete and perfect knowledge is, is stopped so that he can't see sin or so that he can't see wrongdoing. That's not what he means. He, of course, knows all things all the time, including all this, every sin and every evil act. He sees it. He knows it all. What the prophet means is that God is so holy so inherently and completely good that he cannot tolerate sin and any wrongdoing, that he won't overlook evil, that his just character prevents him from doing that, from allowing it to go on forever because he is holy. That's what the prophet means. And further, it's even good that divine judgment exists. Divine judgment is not harsh. It's not evil. It's not inappropriate. Psalm 33, 5 says, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his steadfast love. So whenever, whenever justice prevails on the earth, it's because of God's goodness. Because he, the sovereign Lord of all, loves righteousness and justice. I mean, notice the clarity even of this verse. God's justice is in fact loving. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord, which is in light of his love for righteousness and justice. In other words, God brings about justice through judgment because his love is set upon his chosen ones. His love is set upon his people. Psalm 89, 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. And what that means is that his ruling and his reigning, which consists in righteousness and justice, they are caught up in his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward his people. And that is the context of this divine judgment that we read up here in Exodus chapter 10. Behind this whole event is the sovereign and unchanging nature of our Lord. And we are especially seeing holiness, righteousness, justice, and then steadfast love and faithfulness being displayed to his covenant people, who at this time were the nation of Israel. But again, this is the ninth plague. And the previous eight have all been divine judgment as well. And the whole scene is being orchestrated by God so that his righteousness and holiness is on display through his judgment upon his enemies, uh, the enemies of his people as well. And his steadfast love and his faithfulness is on display for those who love him and those who are his people. That's how the Apostle Paul exegetes this portion of Exodus in Romans 9, by the way. Let me read to you Romans 9, 15 to 18. It says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now we see this happening here. In the plagues before this as well, same thing was going on. God would harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh would harden his own heart. Verse 27 in our text says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
And listen, it's not like Pharaoh was mad about that or he was coerced or something in that in that in that in that moment. There's no reason for us to reject a plain and obvious reading of the text, especially when the Apostle Paul drives a point home like he did in Romans 9. This is this is God's will happening here in Exodus 10. And the reason for this all is that the Lord is wanting to show his power so that his name would be proclaimed in all of the earth, so that his glory would be extended to everyone who hears of this account. And certainly, I mean, look at his power in Exodus 10. There's none that could compare to him. He brings a darkness. And notice the end of verse 21. It's a darkness that can be felt. That's a really interesting way of speaking about a, a darkness that is being put upon these people. This is not a normal darkness. This is a darkness that pierces down into the souls of the Egyptians. Pharaoh actually gets really close, closer than any of the other previous times in the plagues, to letting the people go at this time. But there's still more for God to show, so it doesn't end here. But there is a darkness in the land, a pitch darkness in the land for three days, we read in verse 22. It's, it's so bad that people in Egypt don't see one another, and nobody leaves their home for three days, verse 23 says. This sort of darkness is just simply foreign to us. It's foreign to us because we're not under judgment. Thanks be to God for that and more on that in just a moment. But foreign to us because of the society that we live in as well. Uh, we, can, we can travel at night because of electricity. We can be active. But for them, unless it was a clear night with the moon out and the stars visible to help, they couldn't do much. But in this case, for these three days attached to this ninth plague, they couldn't do anything. This was a darkness that could be felt. It's a pitch darkness. And everyone was isolated until Pharaoh couldn't take it anymore. And he sent for Moses. The darkness is a literal darkness. But it's also more than a literal darkness. It's an act of divine judgment. It's a picture of their unbelief. And notice the end of verse 23. All of Israel had light where they were. There is light in Goshen. The judgment isn't there. The Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness is on display there. The land of Goshen was completely exempted by the Lord from the impact of this plague. The light there pointed to the, resur the, to the presence of the Lord, to the nearness of the Lord and his divine love upon them. And we see in this darkness in Egypt that the judgment lasted for three days. We aren't told why. We're just told that is the case. Now, this is a true event. This truly happened. This is part of the history of the nation of Israel. And it's an important part in the story of God's uh, redemption and his faithfulness to keep his covenant promises. But at the very same time, I hope you will see that God had, or he was superintending these events and these details to point us to Christ and to have us with eyes illuminated with the New Testament to see Christ here in these details. All of the Old Testament, brothers and sisters, is about him. It tells us of him. Uh, Jesus corrected the Pharisees in John 5 to say that the Old Testament testifies about him. With the disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection, Jesus opened up the Old Testament to show them how it all pointed to him and what he would do from the Old Testament. And so the details that we have here in Exodus 10, they should prepare us even so that when we read the New Testament, we might see, we might say, oh, I see what God was doing here. That, that makes sense to me now. Remember, right after this plague of divine darkness judgment would come the, 
the plague of the death of the firstborn, in which a spotless lamb would be slaughtered by those in Israel, and its blood would cover the doorposts of the Israelite homes. Well, Christ Jesus is our spotless lamb, whose life was given so that we could live. His blood covers us so that the righteous judgment of God would pass over us and truly landed on him. And right before he died, we see darkness, the darkness of divine judgment. Turn if your Bible is open, if your fingers are warm enough, you could turn with me to Luke 23. We were actually here the other night on Good Friday, but I want you to see it now as well in light of God setting us up to understand these things, even here from the Old Testament. In the, in the redemption that he was applying and giving in Israel. To see that God was superintending those events back then to be a picture of the events that he would also be superintending and bringing about the redemption of those chosen in him before the foundation of the world. So this is, look at verse 44, brothers and sisters, in Luke 23. So 44 says, it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtains of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So darkness over the whole land now, here in Luke 23. Judgment over the whole land now. Why? Because sin is vast. Sin has spread to every man and woman and child. There's no person anywhere other than the Lord Jesus himself who is without sin. And God's judgment on sin won't miss anyone. The judgment will either be paid by the individual in eternity in hell. Or, or will have been paid by Jesus who endured an eternity of judgment upon himself for a span of three hours fully making atonement, fully satisfying the wrath of Yahweh against sin. In Exodus, there was darkness for three days upon a local group, divine judgment for the sins and rebellion of a specific group who were in bondage in Egypt. In the gospel accounts, there is darkness for three hours. You know, it said from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness upon the whole land, upon the whole area. And we're seeing God's judgment upon the whole of mankind who was in bondage to sin. No one is safe. Everyone will have to give an account before the Lord. This judgment is on everyone. And Christ Jesus, there on the cross, he, the very light of the world, the light that chases away darkness and defeats it, he is at that very time and shrouded in darkness. And he is taking upon himself judgment. Judgment. The judgment that everyone who would ever truly believe deserves to take themselves. He's there on the cross, treated like a criminal, treated like a drug addict, treated like a drunk, treated like an adulterer, treated like a liar and a thief. You have to understand, friends, that if Christ Jesus paid your, for your sins, then you must be settled without a doubt that you are the one who crucified Christ as well. That it was your sin that put him there upon the cross. Christ Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, suffered there on the cross all the pains of torment and torments of hell for our sins. For the sins of everyone 
who would believe, for those who lived before him even, and for those who, who would come to live after him in this work that he does on the cross. It was substitutionary. His life for yours. We then are to be blamed just as much as Judas, just as much as Pontius Pilate, the Sanhedrin, Herod, the Jews. We do not yet understand even the depths of the love given to us on the cross until we start to understand that we are guilty of putting him there as well. John Owen said, God's wrath upon his son was so intense that it could have sunk millions of worlds of sinful men and angels. And that's what the Lord was taking there, that judgment for us. That's the darkness our Lord took for us. This is the judgment he bore. But thankfully, it didn't end there. You could turn to John 20 or you could just let me read this. It's just the next chapter over the very end. Here, um, the Apostle John makes great use of the biblical picture of darkness for being judgment and light for being a redemption and peace. All throughout his gospel, I mean, Jesus is the light. He's the light of man. And actual physical darkness in John's gospel is often used more, I want to say every time, but to be safe, we'll just say more often than not, is used to picture divine judgment and unbelief. And Nicodemus in John chapter 3, for example, visits Jesus when it's nighttime to show that he's in unbelief, he's not trusting the Lord. But if you notice chapter 20, verse 1, this is the, the day after the Old Testament Sabbath, the third day after Christ was buried. His body has been three days in the tomb, but the Father won't let him see corruption. And the disciples are scattered. Uncertainty is dominating the landscape. And so look what we read here in 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, I don't have time to get into all the context here, but note a few things. It's the first day of the week. It's, it's the day that we would call Sunday, the day that Christ has risen from the grave. The reason why we are gathering now is the sun is rising and chasing away the darkness. The darkness is fully gone now. It's already, the sun has officially risen. But we read that Mary comes in, quote, while it was still dark. This is Brother John being theological. Because if we were to keep reading, we would see that Mary didn't yet understand that Jesus was risen. She sees the tomb is empty, but she flees back to the other disciples. And she says, oh, they've taken the Lord's body. She hasn't clicked in her mind yet that Jesus actually has risen from the grave just as he promised. So this is, she's not under judgment, but she's still under some disbelief at this time. This is the Apostle John's way of explaining things theologically. But if we were to look at every other gospel account, we would read that when the disciples and and Mary went to the tomb, it happened on the dawn of the first day in Matthew's gospel. At early dawn in Luke and in Mark, very early when the sun had risen. John, of course, is telling us the same time frame. He's just making a theological point to contrast light and darkness. Because most certainly what is happening here is that Christ Jesus is risen. And he rose very early on the third day. The darkness of the night is fleeting. And the light of the very Son of God is rising up upon the face of the earth. Declaring that justice has been satisfied. That judgment has been rendered. And Christ Though he paid the penalty that our very sins demand, 
He himself was found righteous and without sin. He's vindicated by the Spirit and he's raised for our justification, having no sin in himself and having his payment of the sins of the elect fully accepted. The Lord Jesus lives, even now, living to make intercession for all those who are in covenants with him, for all those that he died and rose for. And out of the Reformation came a phrase, post tenebras lux, which means after darkness, light. For them, it was the darkness of the Roman dogma that had kept people in bondage, and then the light of true, sound doctrines being professed and taught. And faithfulness to the word, that was light. But in another sense, it's simply what we've experienced even with our eyes this morning as the sun has come up, reminding us that Jesus took the judgment that we deserve. He took the darkness that we deserve. He bore it all there upon the cross. And then while his spirit went to the Father, his body lay in the tomb. But after that darkness, at the light of the third day, Christ is risen. And now we live every day free from condemnation, free from every curse, all in the light of the Lord Jesus. As the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, He has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is the light that we live in now every day, brothers and sisters, because of what Christ has done for us. That is, that is where we rest now. And there's a fountain of joy and peace there for us, friends. Let us pray, and then we'll sing one more song together. Our Father, you are glorious. We know there's no shadow in you at all. There is no evil in you. You are the light, the light of the very world. We look forward to the new heavens and the new earth being fully consummated, in which there won't even be need for a sun, we read, because the radiance of your beauty will be the light that we see that we see in and we are so blessed to even now be seen in that light even though it is, it is somewhat veiled lord we anticipate its future glory and are filled with great joy and hope over that so we thank you so much lord jesus and father and spirit for the covenant of redemption for saving us and for your perfect work lord we know that we don't deserve it we're so thankful for your grace in our life. And we pray that you would set our hearts and our affections upon you all the more today. We're so thankful to be able to gather in Jesus' name. Amen.